Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. This is a very exciting episode for reasons that you'll find out about in just a minute if you're listening. This is episode 273. We're recording this live on February 9th, 2023. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hello, and great to be back here. And back from wherever you've been, Mr. Blake Arnstorf. From the deep. How's everybody doing? Hey, Blake. It's so great to have you back on the show. Uh, we got a great show for you all tonight. We're going to be talking about how roboticists want to give you a third arm. And later, we're going to answer some questions from the community about Human Factors and Ergonomics Conference and what that means for you, uh, what happens in some stressful stakeholder meetings, and uh, what happens if somebody schedules your sprint planning meeting for 5 a.m. We're going to talk about all that and more. But first, let's take about uh, a couple of seconds here to talk about some programming notes. Um, if you are listening to this, it's likely that you've seen in our podcast feed this week that our Human Factors Minute trailer is live now. It's out on March 1st, but you can listen to the episodes a day early if you subscribe to the feed. So for all of you, uh, if you want to, there's a link in the description of this episode. You can go follow it over there. Human Factors Minute traditionally been a supporter only show, but now we're making it freely available to the public uh, part of it anyway. And then uh, coming up soon, Friday, February 24th, we have the first Human Factors and Ergonomics Society HFES town hall of the season. So that'll be a great time. Come and join us. Come with your questions. It'll be a good time. But Blake, I have to know, what have you been up to since the last time we talked? What, welcome back, man. Thanks for having me back on the show. Yeah, it's been a long time. It's been almost a little over a year. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just kind of finding my way through what I want to do with my career and making different changes and moves, uh, kind of moving a little bit more towards design and development from being a user experience researcher for a little while. Uh, but not a whole lot. It feels really good to be back here talking with y'all about human factors things. Um, and I'm really excited just to do a little banter with you guys. It feels great to have you all in one place. Uh, Barry, I have to know what's the latest going on over at 1202. So at 1202, we've still got the interview with Stephen Shorrock up there. And in that, he gives us an overview of his career with some really interesting and cool reflections on some of the things that um, he's got up to and what's kind of shaped and molded his career. Um, and one of the most interesting things for me was where he turned around and said, um, rather than deliver a report, he wrote a letter to the management. Um, and, and that was just, that was just phenomenal. I would never have the guts to do something like that. I don't think, or maybe I would now that I've, I've had the example, but we're also broadening our reach. So we've now got a dedicated TikTok, Instagram accounts. Um, and, um, we are trying to push some more content. So the shorts we're trying to get to be a bit more professional and, um, a bit more dynamic. So we put in more effort in, in the background. Basically, I'm learning how to do this editing stuff. Um, so we've got some really exciting interviews coming up as well. So some of them are in um, all, all scheduled. Two of them coming up in the next month are two of the most exciting ones I think I've done. Yeah, I was very excited about Stephen's interview being really good. These two, I think, might even just be even that one step higher. I'm very, very excited. Oh, I have to know. I have to know. You can type it in, in this like chat that we're all looking at. But no one else will know. All right. Well, thank you, Barry. Let's get into the part of the show everyone's here for. That's right. It's Human Factors News. Barry, what is the story this week? So this week, roboticists want to give you a third arm. So what would you do with an extra limb? 
And before the social media melts down, please remember this is a family-friendly show. Um, we've all seen in jobs that require an extra hand, from surgeons performing complex operations to braiding long hair. That's not to mention soldering wires or carpentry trying to put together them fiddly joints. And that's just to consider supporting what we do now. What could you do better or differently, like Spider-Man's Dr. Octopus? Or what would a four-handed pianist be been able to achieve? Or a gymnast with four arms? Such scenarios may seem like science fiction, but recent progress in robotics and neuroscience makes extra robotic limbs conceivable with today's technology. The research group at Imperial College London and the University of Friedberg in Germany, together with partners in European Project NEMA, are figuring out whether such augmentation could be realised in practice to extend human capabilities. The main questions the team is addressing include whether the human brain can control extra uh, additional body parts and what neural signals can be used to do so. The researchers believe that extra robotic limbs could be a new form of human augmentation, improving people's abilities and expanding what they can do with their bodies. The study dif differentiates three levels of human augmentation, with the third level being the least mature technologically, but offering users an extra degree of freedom without taking away mobility from any other body part. The researchers are working on both invasive brain-machine interface implants and non-invasive methods to pick up brain signals, including EEG and EMG signals uh, produced by muscles. So, Blake, the million-dollar question here. What would you do with your third hand? I think I'm most concerned about, like, walking through doors with a third arm and just getting stuck, not being able to move through it effectively. But, like, all kidding aside, this seems pretty insane. I love the idea of, like, music creation changing, especially, like, from the piano perspective, being able to, like, make pianos with two extra octaves or something like that. But when I started thinking about that particular concept, it's almost like a human evolution type of thing where now you've introduced a completely new limb or completely new set of limbs. How does that change and augment our entire environment? How does it change your day-to-day -day life? How does it change jobs? There's just a lot of cool augmentation that can happen and like productivity may skyrocket. And people being able to do that third thing that they can't normally do. But ultimately for me, what I'm most stoked on is the neural communication part. Like, does that really provide a medium for doing different things, controlling things with your mind that we typically don't do, like computing or anything like that, outside of just like a, a third arm? Um, but that's kind of my initial take on it. It's really cool. It seems really out there. Um, but I'm really excited about the neuroscience behind it. And I mean, like, from, from, from the mental capacity, can we even handle that as humans? Can we handle knowing where a third arm is right <laughs> to be clear really quick to be clear you were talking about this is an audio medium and just in case it was misunderstood you were talking about people who play pianos earlier right not not the other mm -hmm. thing all right so uh there might be just a little bit of outside influence that happened by the way with the selection of this story barry uh but <laughs> but my first reaction to this story is this would have been an amazing thing to have when my son was an infant, because there's just so many things that you need to do as a new parent that you just need an extra hand for, whether it's, you know, you're holding you're holding baby and you need to, I don't know, get out a wipe or something. And you're like trying to one hand it and you're just relying on the weight of the wipes to like grab grab it from the the container. And, you know, if you had a third hand to hold that thing down or to actually grab the wipe with, and you could use your other hand to hold it down or, you know, to change a diaper and, and to hold other things while you're doing a diaper, you know, like, or if you're even referencing how to do something as a new parent, you can hold your phone with a how to thing right here. And it's just permanently mounted there. And you're like reading step by step and you're, you know, navigating through it 
while your actual two hands are free. But beyond that, we'll talk about some of the mental capacity things with with respect to um, how to actually control these things a little bit later. But that was just my initial thought is like, how how is this going to work? Barry, what are your initial thoughts on this? I think I'm in the same boat as both of you that no, it's fantastic. It, the the mind boggles. It's a, it's amazing. And, and where do you stop? If we can get an arm right, well, you, they're talking about like extra legs and um, you know extra fingers and you know can you get an extra head? you know what more can you uh, do and what could the mind cope with in 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 making this sort of stuff work? Because to get an arm working, surely then it's only um, to, if you conquered all the hurdles to get you there, it can't be much further to get you get you elsewhere. Um, but on again on them serious point, it's I'm I'm very much in with Blake here. It's, I'm really interested in in the in this control aspect. How do you make this? And this no pun intended. How do you make this truly truly hands free? Um, because normally when we have this sort of re, um, third arm, we see it with like with surgeons, don't we? And it's it's remote remote articulation. Whereas this is what we talk what we're talking about is having that in something an extra useful uh, capacity. So I'm really excited to dive into this in, into this discussion. Before we do that, we had uh, you've actually reached out on social media, Barry, to see what people in the community are saying. Do you want to read one of these just in terms of another application that we could potentially use technology like this for? Yeah, really so critical. I, I did. Um, I did reach out massively, um, and that might have you know persuaded. Um, I did I, I influence maybe a little bit where the subject came from tonight, but I wanted to highlight um, a comment by Rob Hutton who's a lecturer here in the in the UK, and he commented on LinkedIn um, that a really, really high-tech and critical use of this, um, something that we all struggle from, is when you've got that itch in the middle of your back, it will just be able to get it for you. Um, so, and I, I mean, that, that, to be honest, that was one of my first thoughts as well when it was there, uh, when he said, there, God, if you've got an itch on, itch, itch on your back, I mean, I mean, who wouldn't spend the billions of pounds that it's going to take to develop this technology to, uh, to have a back scratcher? Yeah, I mean, it can, it can bend in ways that you're, your regular arms can't. And so that's got to be worth something, right? Let's talk about, I mean, we could go anywhere with this, honestly. And I, I think we're kind of all in the same boat of like wanting to know how this neural connection works, right? So let's talk about how you control this thing, uh, or at least a little bit more about how you might control this thing. So for for from what I understand, there's two different ways in which you could, right? You could look at uh, either a traditional brain computer interface where it is interfacing with your brain, the invasive technology, right? So um, that that might be one way that you're that you're looking at. It's kind of the physical control, neural signals going in and controlling these things. There's also non-invasive technology that can be used. Um, you know, things like EEG and signals from your brain that are just passively controlling. The, not passively. You're actively controlling it based on what signals. What signals work. What signals don't. But those are the two ways in which we can control this thing. Uh, I don't know. Blake, what are your thoughts on control of this thing? I feel like the, the like, of course, like the, the business answer is like, how do we make this accessible to a lot of people? So like giving some kind of wearable that allows you to measure EEG or any signals coming off your body could be amazing. But I think what ends up being the interesting problem is the degrees of freedom you get from the two different modes of being able to control something. So I'd say the application would have a lot of impact on how you're going to want to control something like this. Because one thing that I didn't even think about till I was listening to y'all talk is there's like a, a giant thing here for prosthetics. So replacing limbs that used to exist and then leveraging, you know, existing neuronal connections for that. Um, so in that case, maybe you, some, you want something a little more 
invasive. So because it's acting as a limb, depending on how the tech works versus having a third arm at your job, going back to like the, the surgery example from earlier, using a wearable could just make it. So you're, you know, only using it at work, taking on and off and all that kind of stuff. So I think the control mechanism is really an interesting thing here and how you can actually, you know, what can we get away with, with least the least evasive technology? And then what, how do we superpower that by being a little more invasive? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you've fired a, a whole bunch of thought there, because you're right, if you, if you take that prosthetic approach, that's where they're, they're adapting already existing signals, already existing movements, and transplanting them into, in, into, the, into the technology. And that just shows the, the magnitude of the task. The fact that not only are we going to have to create a, an, a control interface, but we're going to have to do it in a way that the brain can control it. And it's got to be able to control it. I mean, the big, one of the biggest issues we're going to have here is latency. Um, it's got to, you know, as soon as you, however you imagine that work is done, it's got to be done, hasn't it? You know, you, you don't sit there and say, lift my arm, and then, you know, your arm lifts like two minutes later. It has to be controlled. So how do we make sure that latency goes down, which le then leads you down back down to, well, I can't see how it wouldn't be an invasive control. Um, because every other non-invasive control I've seen has been a, an interpretation you have to think in a certain way. You're trying to create a brain form, aren't you, rather than thinking, right, I need to grab this. Um, it's got to almost be that that um, you know uh, goal-oriented uh, thing. I, I want this to happen, not I must lift the arm and make it articulate in some way. So I keep on going back to uh, the Matrix. Um, are we literally going to have to have that sort of almost plug-in, I mean, okay, maybe not quite as invasive as the Matrix 1, Matrix one but some sort of plug-in um, to make that happen. And then almost that, that then takes you to the uh, the other point you made, Blake, is if this is something that you wear for work, um, would you A, want to take it off? And B, how would you take it off? And what is the risk involved in suddenly thinking, oh, I've dropped something, I've got, you know, if you've got that third arm, but the third arm isn't there anymore because you're just taking it off because you're at home and you, can, you don't catch that cup of tea which you thought you'd be able to. Um, um, or whatever it is, you know, you, uh, there, there is probably a massive safety case there around having limbs and not having limbs purely down to how you're controlling them. Um, not so much because of the having them there itself, but because um, you've got to be able to distinguish between I have it or I don't. Um, and be, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of stuff there, which I think could be really fascinating. You're going down the safety rabbit hole. And I mean, there's there's a ton of other safety yeah, concerns. I didn't, I didn't want to, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a ton of other safety concerns. Not only am I thinking about, do I have this thing on or not? Because I've only put it on for work. But I mean, even having this thing on, if it pinches a body part because you've operated it in a way that's not the way that you wanted it to, and it's behaved in a way that you haven't wanted it to. There's all these considerations from that perspective. But then what about some of the long lasting impacts of, you know, wearing this thing in a place that, humans haven't evolved traditionally to accommodate. So if you're wearing this big, heavy thing on your backpack, is the weight distributed properly to allow your body to accommodate for that? Are you going to have some long lasting health effects with uh, with respect to, you know, the way that you move and <laughs> things like that from having these extra robotic limbs off of your body? Um, you know, beyond the physical component is there going to be like i mentioned earlier enough mental capacity for us to actually operate these in a safe way on the job 
uh, you know, if it's something that we've like, you know, implanted into our infants at birth where they have this control mechanism and we put little tiny baby robot arms on them and they can learn to use those like their normal limbs as they've grown up, then I think we're capable of doing that and understanding what is possible with this third arm capability. It allows us to move and operate in different ways. But if we don't have that training or or experience growing up with this third limb, what does that actually look like in an operational environment? You know, is is it going to be safe and reliable for those who are inexperienced with it as well as those who are experienced with it? And is it going to basically be uh, durable in, in cases where, I don't know, maybe you're operating dangerous machinery with it? Uh, and is it going to pull you into that dangerous machinery? Is there going to be like some some quick release mechanism that if you get it caught in something, it's going to quickly come off, you know, and then what does that do for you? Obviously you won't feel pain. Hopefully not. But like, what, what, what does that feel like to then try to perform a task and not have that thing there? I just have so many questions. (laughs) Well, again, I mean that, that whole feeling thing, I mean, we sort of, with, with the remote limb application, we tend to wear haptics, don't we? So when you, when it, when it pressures something, you get the pressure on your, um, on your own hand, so you kind of know where you're at. This that just doesn't apply because it's a third limb, um, and the more you sort of go down this rabbit hole, it, it's it's quite amazing. The other thing to you sort of mentioned the safety bit around if it pinches your body, what happens if it pinches somebody else's, and how do you get that feedback? And how, if you grip somebody else too hard or or something like that as well, that's um, that's not good. That's an ethical consideration there. Oh, well, I mean, it could. It would be just providing you feedback, right? Like I could see that like, even in the case of like, if we were playing somebody's leg, like being able to provide, you know, actuation back to you that you've stepped on something, Um, Mm -hmm. but you don't really want to be hurting people either. And so that, that does seem pretty dangerous in some ways, but I don't know about y'all this really, again, with a lot of this technology, it seems like very stepping stone. Like, like I don't, I don't see third arms being the, the end here. I, I would actually see like, this is, more focused on the being able to control a lot of autonomous things in your environment uh, through whatever kind of neuro haptics that are going on. So like take the, take all the limbs off of you eventually and you're controlling machines in an entire warehouse or something to that effect. Yeah. And that, that really does open up the human computer or the brain computer interaction in all this. Again, my questions are mostly around capacity for humans to understand what they're doing in a situation where you're plugging into an entire system, right? Do you have the brain capacity to manage an entire system of various machinery to perform a task? Uh, and, and where do we limit that scope of, of control? Because mm-hmm. that scope of control is going to be really important um, for just our ability to do something like just take, okay, I'm going to bring it back to the arms really quick. Imagine you have two extra arms on your back and you're playing a piano. Okay. It's for me, uh, even having some experience, it's hard enough to play with two hands to really practice at it. You know, for some people, they're savants and sure, whatever, but you know, for, for others, it's, it's just enough to try to get your hands to work in coordination. Now add two more to that. And the complexity doesn't double. It quadruples or, you know, it's it's some sort of exponential thing by adding in two more things to control because playing a piano is exactly like this already. You can start with one hand and play a tune. Then you can add in 
your second hand and play, you know, uh, the accompaniment. And then you add in your foot with sustain pedals. And so you're now controlling three different things that control different aspects of the piano. If you add in two more limbs that are doing different things, I guess I'm kind of convincing myself that it's possible, but it's a lot to think about. So the, the flip argument I give to that is you've got, rather than think of, of a piano, think of an organ, um, like, like a church organ or something like which has got, you know, some of the big ones have got like four keyboards. Um, and so that means you could be playing, and literally you have to choose which ones you're going to play. You could be playing all four. Um, and, and that would produce a, such a different type of music um, at that point. Um, but yes, I mean, the, the it's just that, I think once you work out how you are going to control one, because we it's a constant refrain, isn't it, that actually the brain is underutilized massively. Um, you know, it's got loads of capacity and stuff. We just don't really truly understand and we're, we're evolving to do it. Um, the, uh, the digital natives of today um, could control way more digitally than digital immigrants and older generations because it's an evolutionary thing. So no matter what happens now, it might seem quite fantastic now. In 10 years' time, I'm thinking 10, 15 years time, this is going to be completely normal. And we're going to have evolved to use it. I mean, look at a basic game gaming controller. There are so many more functions on there that um, people can easily adapt to, you know, younger generations easily adapt to now. I struggle to use them all because I'm of that slightly older generation. Um, so, you know, it, 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 these things evolve. So I think once they come in, as you said, I think this is a stepping stone. Um, this is, you know, it's always the first to market type of thing. How are we going to use it? How are we going to make the most of it? But it's, it is still really exciting. I mean, actually, for your piano thing, it wouldn't necessarily be another hand on the keyboard. It would be the thing to turn the page of your music. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to comment on two things. One, the 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 video game controllers thing. Okay, I was gonna give my son like Super Mario, you know, jump left and right, and that's basically all you have with some throwing in there too. He's like fully playing Hot Wheels games where you're not only maneuvering the car left and right on the track, you're going forward, you're going backwards, you're doing drifts. He's doing drifts and he's three years old. <laughs> he's also, okay, not only that, but that you can use the secondary stick, the right stick, to maneuver your vehicle in midair for jumps where you're like going off a ramp and then you have to turn the car upside down to land on a magnetic track. He's doing all that at three. And I'm like, I was going to give this kid Mario to start with. And he's like, just it's really way impressive. beyond that already. Yeah. That? <laughs> the second piece. I don't remember what my comment was. I'll get back to it. I'm sure it was amazing. What <laughs> do you think about the, to pick a point that Blake made earlier around um, it being, you know, widely available, something that's going to be widely available. I mean, there's got to be massive social implications for this because if this appears at your local technology store, it's not going to be cheap, is it? So, I mean, there, no. there's got to be, what are the social impacts of this? If you've got this third arm, fourth arm, whatever it is, you know, an extra foot and you can run quicker or whatever it, whatever it is, does that mean that, um, is it just a toy? Or is it going to give you more capacity and capability? It's going to make you more employable uh, because, because you bought it and therefore um, it becomes, a, becomes basically a, a differentiator because you can afford to buy, buy a funky gadget. Well, that's almost what I was thinking. Like, do you, for certain jobs, do you now have to be certified to use this device in mm -hmm. a workplace setting? How does that change, like the education system or John on on job onboarding? And there, there seems like there's a giant, you know, 
design chasm there of onboarding somebody to how to use one of these devices for a job, especially if we're talking about these things that are a little bit more serious, like being a surgeon, working in construction, putting together automobiles versus mm-hmm. like being in your own home and being able to use it. So I would imagine it, it kind of changes a lot of things from the employment perspective, which I know that's like a giant, you know, thing that people are already dealing with, with the AI perspective on that. I remember what it was. I was going to jump in with a joke about one uh, one man bands complaining that their jobs are being taken now by robotic arms. But the, <laughs> I mean, along <laughs> along the same line of job requirements, right? This this opens up a whole additional aspect of of jobs because well, it opens up new jobs to begin with because you have to have technicians and engineers to maintain and repair these robotic arms, these robotic limbs. You also have to have um, you know a updated skills like you were saying blake like you have to upgrade these skills to to operate these robotic limbs and so is there some sort of certification that says i can use one of these on the job uh and then there's also you know opportunities for development and manufacture of these limbs obviously but then what happens if you get those jobs that are automated by basically recording someone's input putting a robotic limb and just repeating that input, right? Like recording macros and having a, an arm do those jobs. Do we need people to do those jobs anymore if we just have a power source and somebody's initial input making that thing happen? I don't know. It, it opens up a lot of questions from job requirements perspective. What is going to be required for jobs? And it's the same question I have around AI too, right? We've seen a lot of different tools coming out recently. ChatGPT and Google's Bard now coming out too. Many other competitors as well to AI. And it's going to be a training thing. Can we get enough people to understand what these tools, AI and robotic arms included, can be used for and are used effectively for? Uh, and is it, like you were saying, is it going to be one of those things that is going to be limited to access to those who have money? And it's going to make that divide even further, right? Because like AI is an easy one to point to right now. To be able to afford an AI, I mean... ChatGPT is free right now, but they're going to start charging for it. And so if you're not able to use that, you're a, you're immediately put at a disadvantage. It's like not only owning a calculator if you're trying to do work in math. And so are, are you going to be lesser, quote unquote, at your job because you can't afford these things? It's yeah, there's a lot of questions. I don't know. I've just opened up a can of words here. Well, it is. I mean, it's one of these things, isn't it? I think the the evolution of technology always changes jobs. Um, no matter what happens. but And I think the way that you mentioned it earlier, you know, there's going to be a whole bunch of new jobs open up with this. There's going to be maintenance. There's going to be, you know, what what new roles does it open up by the fact that you've got the ability to have this, you know, extra arms, et cetera, et cetera. We, we, there's so many science fiction movies out there where, you know, you've got extra limbs, um, you know, it's almost a path of course in, um, in this sort of stuff. And it just naturally happens. So, I th- with the, with all the things that have evolved, and it's it's been doing it for like literally hundreds of years. The some jobs will close down. Some you know you will need less people doing mandrolic work. Um, you know manual labor will become less intensive because one person can do so much more. But then the you, you chat GBT example I think is quite good. They you know they, it's it's open source at the moment. Google's piece will become um, open source or relatively cheap and accessible. Um, so. That makes, you know, we've seen it on this show that we can have that extra capability um, because of the use of AI. And 
it hasn't stopped us from doing um it doesn't take us out of job it's allowed us to do more not less and i kind of think that this sort of technology will go down that route because employers will see that this allows more capability so they'll you know it's a bit like you know a pilot doesn't buy their own well some do buy their own airplane but an airline pilot doesn't buy their buy their own airplane you know the employer buys the airplane the pilots learn how to fly them um and so this could be a similar type of type of thing um but bringing it right back to to design and development, uh, the other, the other thing that I was thinking about is what does the aesthetic of this look like? Because is it a does it look like a hand? So is it like a is it like, you know like a, a fake skin hand? Is it a um, a more mechanical looking um, like almost gears and you know almost steampunk? Yeah, that that type of thing. Um, that's really weird. Um, but the um, for those audio listening, Nick's got random hands, hands, hands coming out of random parts of his body. Um, the, uh, but yeah, so is it something that's going to look a bit more mechatronic, or is it something that's got to look a bit? Has it got to look like um, a, a, a skin arm? Um, Blake, what do you think? Well, I was wondering about that too, because like, in, if if anybody like takes a look at the article that's linked, like they show a example where somebody's like replacing a space station or fixing something on a space station. And it looks very mechanical looking. Mm -hmm. However, like when we're talking about leveraging, you know, neuronal capacity and thinking about like, well, what's going to be easier for somebody to understand how a machine works or using something that looks like their own hand or their own arm. So for, from my perspective, maybe the arm is the way to go. Uh, just because it it could potentially give you a better point of reference for when you start thinking about how this thing works or what it can do that we're not really stuck in that like okay i need this extra limb to do this action for me it's as simple as like pick that up or give me that thing off the shelf um but nick what do you think how would how would you have this designed so I've, I've thought about this a little bit because I'm not super happy with the illustration on the, on the original article. And I mean, there's, um, you know, they, they do kind of have this back to, to further expand on your point. They have a backpack with two arms sticking out of it that are kind of right behind your arms and they're kind of rotated. They're, they're robotic in nature. I don't know. Um, I think the easiest thing to operate would probably be an analog close to what we have. And that's just my my initial thought, right? And an analog to our arm connected at our shoulder joint. Uh, and, and basically the only thing that might be different in the case of implementing some of these like robotic arms, you have, um, I don't know, you have AI systems on board, whatever thing is on you that is going to allow for the interpretation of your input. So there's some sort of third mechanism in in the form of an artificial intelligence that is interpret interpreting your input and producing the output into robot arm speak so that way it programs a, a place for it to go and do all that and all this has to happen really quickly so that way if you do have those thoughts of like pick that thing up um it's got to deconflict between what your intent is with your arms with your custom fleshy bits you know, versus the robotic bits, uh, is, is are your fleshy bits going to do that? Are your robotic bits going to do that? How does it deconflict those things? Um, what's going on? Wh which one is going to take this one? I'm doing this with my fleshy bits and doing that with my robotic bits. And how does all that work? So there's got to be automated systems on board. But the way I'm thinking about this, 
to begin with, I, I, I'm imagining this technology being used very, uh, I don't know, conservatively and maybe almost like we see it in this illustration where it's some sort of exosuit or exoskeleton that allows us to offset that weight and help us in environments in which case we have to do complex tasks where we hold multiple objects and items and they might just be a pair of helping hands to begin with and then we advance that relationship with the way in which we interact with the robotic bits later on but i think that's the evolution for me is you tack these onto an exoskeleton exosuit with you know the the um non-invasive brain reading to start and then the evolution is something down the line where we have multiple limbs and you know we just change out our pairs of arms <laughs> Like, what does that mean culturally? I don't know. That's something else that I want to get to before we wrap up here. But um, speaking of wrapping up, let's let's do one more round of thoughts and then we'll we'll get out of here. Barry, what, what are your kind of closing thoughts on uh, the arm stuff? So I'm loving the, um, the, the depth of science that we have fleshy bits and robotic bits. I think the terminology is just, just on point. Um, I think the I, there's two bits that I've got. got yeah. All around. Fleshy and robotic. Of, we got it. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, <laughs> this. There's a lot of um, uh, videos around at the moment where they do the experiment where you have the the fake hand and the real hand, and they hit the fake hand with the hammer, and the real hand thinks it's got uh, it's it's getting the, uh, the 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 reception of that. So that's one thing I think we the our brains will be easily confused without really good training. Um, the the other bit I don't know whether you get it out in the states, but I'm hopefully people get it. If anybody's watched, watched Inspector Gadget, um, oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, good. That's okay. No, uh, uh, good cultural reference. Um, is this just going to end up like that, where basically it's like go, go, get your hands, or go, and you know, as you sort of said, the the, the development of that is the hands go away, and it's it's just the tool that you're trying to use. So if you're a mechanic, it it's like the drill. That's it's how you operate the drill from that point. It's how you operate the container for for holding the um, the bolts, that type of thing. So yes, I think um, as we said right at the top, this is the start of something. I think going to be quite impressive. Blake, what about you? What What are your final thoughts on this? It, I think the the third arm thing, like I said a couple times, is like a starting place. And really, where I'm excited or interested in is how does this allow? Because Nick, you brought up a really good point. Like, what if we gave this to kids? What if we gave this to kids and it starts really expanding their capability to use their brain more than we're able to do now, or give it to adults that now are able to like expand and use more neurons in their brain than they've ever used before. How does that change how people think? How does it change how people interact with the world around them or interface with each other technology? So I, I really am excited to see how does this impact our brains? Cause really that's the underlying science here is like what's going on with the neuroscience and as neuroplastic as the brain can be, it would be insane if we could use, you know, 2% more of our brain and see what comes from it. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, it's more of the like society, cultural norms type of questions that I want to, this is the part where I open up just a bunch of can of worms where we don't address it because we're going to go to a commercial here in a second. But basically like some of the classic cyberpunk questions, do you modify yourself? Do you, do you modify your body with these bits? Right. Do you like integrate this technology? Uh, do you integrate with the technology? Do you, do you get the technology to be able to jack into a, you know, BCI, um, you know, basically there's, there's obviously all these privacy concerns. Can you get hacked? Can you, you know, whatever, but there's also disparities with respect to access to this stuff, um, from socioeconomical status, you know, classic cyberpunk 
stuff. But also, what does this mean in terms of um, being able to use these limbs for malicious purposes? Is it going to superpower criminals? We don't know. And then lastly, uh, what does this do from a cultural norms perspective and values? Does this change how people view other people who use this stuff? Uh, Am I going to think lesser of you because you use two robotic arms? Are you going to think lesser of me because I use two robotic arms and I've chosen to do so because it augments the way that I think and augments the way that I interact with the world? So that's it. Thank you to our patrons and uh, everybody else who voted on the story this week. And thank you to Barry for his influence on the story this week. Thank you to our friends over at IEEE Spectrum for our news story. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to the original articles on our weekly roundups and our blog. So you can also join us in our Discord for more discussion on these stories and much more. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yeah, we'll need to change that once Human Factors Minute goes live. Uh, but a huge thank you, to, as always, to all of our patrons. We especially want to thank our Human Factors cast, All Access patrons, Michelle Tripp. Uh, let's talk about Human Factors Minute for a second. I brought it up at the top, but again, it's going to be live. It's going to be public uh, for public consumption on March 1st, early if you subscribe to the feed. Uh, but total right now, currently for our patrons, we have 166 episodes out there. That'll be on a slow drip for all of you uh, listening to it publicly. But... The total time we we have three and a half hours just about of human factors minutes out there in the world. Three hours, 29 minutes and six seconds. Average uh, playtime is at a minute and 15 seconds. So you're actually getting a little bit more than a minute in each human factors minute. I'm really excited for you all to experience this. This has been a long labor of love. Blake and I started it back in, what, 2019 or something. And since then, there's been a lot more voices and people involved in the project than just Blake and myself. In fact, we brought Barry on a little bit into the production of that. So that way he's a voice and talent on the show as well. Beyond that, there's many people that work in our lab as volunteers who author these Human Factors Minutes. They go out, they do the research, they bring all that stuff together and combine it into one topic that we bring to you in one minute every week. So I'm super excited for this thing to go live. I just cannot wait for you all to get it into your ear holes uh, from all the hard work that we've all put into this. So with that, let's get into the next part of the show we like to call. It came from. It came from. I see Blake. Blake's laughing because I've never changed the visual, even though I complained about it. Forever. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Anyway, let's get into It Came From. Uh, This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. If you find any of these answers useful, 
uh, give us a like to help other people find this content. It really mean a lot to us if you did that. All right. This first one here is uh, is from the Human Factor subreddit. This is Correct Bull 8862 uh, Let's see here. They write HFES Conference. Is this a good place? Oh, sorry. HFES Conference slash HFES Healthcare. Is this a good place to network and line up internships and jobs? I feel like this is a this a uh, what are they? It's like a softball. So uh, Barry, what do you think? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it absolutely is. Uh, the only thing I would say though is something I've learned uh, the hard way. You need to put the effort in. You need to put the work in to make sure that you. Um, you know who you're going to go and talk to, that you you actually go and do it. I've done it before. You go to conferences and go, I'm going to go talk to these, all these people. And then, you know, you get nervous, imposter syndrome, whatever it is that comes into play. And you decide to go and hide in the corner or do what I do, go and find the corner of the bound, drink red wine. Um, the you, If you want to go and talk to people, work out who's going to be there, make your list, make sure, you know, get your top 10 of people you want to go and talk to and go and do it. Um, so make your network plan. You can't, if you're going to make the most of it, you can't just rock up and um, and hope it all happens. Hey, Barry, quick quick follow up on that. Not everybody has a podcast where they can say, "Hey, do you want to be on my podcast and talk there?" How That's do you true. do that? I don't know. That's why I started a podcast so I could absolutely make it to start. <laughs> um, I mean, it's one of these things. It's it's actually going to be the topic of my of of my um, opening conference speech this year is about communications, about welcoming people in, because. We go, I mean, I remember going to one of my first ergonomics conferences, sat with a bunch of friends, um, a bit younger than I am now, going, oh, look, you've got the really important people giving speeches up up on the top. I could never hope to speak. And they're asking, they're daring to ask a question of that expert on the stage and asking difficult questions, whereas now I'm the difficult person asking the questions or, you know, giving the presentations. And you sort of forget what it's like to be the person down in the audience thinking that they, they dare not go and talk to somebody uh, because they think they're too big and uh, big and important. So I'm going to try and put the challenge out there to a make sure you, you know, you can go and talk to all these people, but also on, on the presenters on, on us to make sure that we are open to be, uh, to be spoken to. So, but you've oh, small talk. I mean, how, how do you do small talk? Um, or as, or as you do it, don't bother and just goes, um, and just go and say hi. Um, most people are more welcoming than you give them credit for. And if they're not, well, quite frankly, they don't deserve to know you. I couldn't have said anything better myself. That's really, really great advice. Blake, what about you? So I, I think we're all going to agree here. So I'm going to try and take a, like a perspective on how you can approach this and get the gold mine that it is out of it. I think Barry made a great point of like knowing who you're going to go talk to. One approach I've taken before is reaching out to people before I go to a conference and asking about things they're going to talk about. If they're, if like the presentation roster is up or like, also like knowing who of my friends or who of my network group is going so that I feel like I have a buddy that I can go talk to and, you know, always be in a group of people. The other thing to look out for is like, are there events that are specifically geared towards going and interacting with people? Are there like interactive workshops? Are there happy hours? Are there like opening speeches or dinners or whatever? Cause that can be a great place to hit like day one, go meet a bunch of people and, you know, try and, you know, make a friend the first day. The other thing that I think is super valuable about conferences that I see in most are the, you know, mock interviews or like job fair type things that they have. 
those can be super useful because like there's less barrier to entry of like, Oh, I don't know this person. I'm nervous to talk to them. They're a rock star in UX or human factors or whatever. This is more of like, go get the reps in of interviewing and maybe something works, maybe something doesn't, but you'll learn a lot in the process. Yeah. Uh, I, geez, guys, you, you like taking all the good stuff. I basically, yes. Uh, these are great to go to. Um, and I'd highly recommend anyone go to these in person just because, Going in person, you beyond the the whole planning who you want to talk to and reaching out to people beforehand, you also have the opposite end of interactions that you weren't expecting. You run into people who you're like, hey, I didn't know you were working on this thing. And you have those discussions in the hallway after a presentation. You go to these discussion panels and somebody brings up a really good point that you didn't think about. And then it sparks an idea. You spark collaboration between. And it's just like these ideas are just flying at conferences. And like Barry was saying, it can be intimidating to like, you know, brainstorm with somebody else who may know more than you. And it's okay to be humbled in that way and say, oh, well, I just didn't know about that. That's great that you've already researched that thing that I just came up with. But also, <laughs> you know, it's like that that might spawn further additional uh, ideation and collaboration between you and another person. And it's also possible that you might be working on something totally distant from the topic being talked about, but have a way in which that topic can be applied to what you're working on or vice versa. And that's another form of collaboration that you can do. And so it's just like, yes, there's everything, everything. Just go. Uh, and the healthcare symposium is coming up soon. In fact, we'll have some coverage. Not sure what exactly yet, but we will have some coverage this year. So that's great. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's all for this question. Let's let's get into the next one here. This one's a stressful stakeholder meeting this Friday by Jammers9787 on the UX Research subreddit. They write, I have a meeting coming up about research processes and templates I've been using. General research ops rather than specifics of all the studies, studies being run. Uh, this individual I'll be presenting to is known for being blunt, cold, and very critical. I've seen them during other presentations, and they essentially cross-examine people and leave. everyone leaves the meeting feeling worse than they came in. Does anyone have any tips on how to manage stakeholders like this? Barry, you know anyone uh, like that? I don't know what you're talking So, right, I'll give you some advice, and I advise you not to take it. So, right, the one way is just take it. If you know what they're like, you know it's going to be, you know it's not personal, just just let it wash over you and it's their problem, not yours. Unfortunately, I can't take that advice because I don't like letting people to get away with that. I see no reason at all why anybody should be allowed to get away with being insert expletive at that point towards you when you're just trying to do your job. So I have two approaches to to it really. One of the one of them I call it out um and suggests that uh, not in a nasty way not anything like that but along the lines of i don't think necessarily we need to be that um argumentative that defense whatever it is that they're being um you know we we could maybe counter things in a slightly friendlier uh, manner uh, whatever the other one i quite like doing and it depends <laughs> a how much i want the job to continue and whatever but i just go reflective if they're being blunt, cold, and critical, then I'll just I'll just reflect it back at them. And sometimes it's a good way of um, does no. I think yeah, fifty fifty. Um, if you're doing that, some people actually take that and go, "Oh, I see what they're doing." Um, that oh, is that what I'm doing? Oh, right, okay. Um, or they'll just get really sort of, "How dare you be like that with me?" Um, 
and then somebody else will point out is oh it's just like two of the same pe- same people in the room so the problem with doing that is if if <laughs> with any of them approaches you kind of got to be vaguely confident in your position because otherwise it's not necessarily good for employment longevity um if they particularly if they're if they're senior um i've seen it unfortunately go wrong for myself on a couple of occasions um but fundamentally i don't believe it should happen and i wish everybody felt empowered to call it out it's not always it's not always like that you can't always do it um but you should be able to i would like to think so how do you guys keep hold of your jobs as opposed to doing the way that i do it i you know i agree with you barry i think that it's one of the, it's a hard, it's a rock and a hard place, especially like if you in the U S or I guess globally, if you look at the economy, like it's hard to say some of these things, like you should feel like you're empowered to call this kind of stuff out at work because it's, it's probably not a place that you want to be working if that's not addressed by somebody else. And like, you've got a group of peers that are just let, letting a toxic individual at a senior level, make people feel this way. However, I do think there are a couple things to like take a step back and look at, um, from my like time being a designer and a very short stint of trying to be a stand-up comedian, I have a really thick skin. And I think it's an important thing to have if you're in the UX design community or like even if you're a researcher too, because you have to present hard points sometimes. It can be really difficult with different stakeholders. Um, so one thing to try and do is separate it from taking it personally. Uh, if you know this person is going to act this way, do your best to look for actual objective feedback that you can use and be questioning about it. Like make sure that you can actually walk away with something. Um, one interesting case that I had, cause I, I'm not great at being super combative um, in group settings, but I will always go up to somebody afterwards and try and have a discussion of what just happened to that room. Um, and I found more often than not, some people don't know that that's the way they're coming off and that's the way they're making people feel. Uh, so if you, if you like can bring it up in yourself to go talk to the whoever after the meeting and get a better sense of, do they really understand what they're doing to people? Um, I'll give you for forewarning. This can backfire too, and just be a, an entirely worse conversation and make you feel even worse. And you, to Barry's point, you may lose your job because you lose your temper. Um, but it's just like, try to take it with stride and like give the person the benefit of the doubt, even if they don't deserve it. Um, and just kind of like see what you can do from, taking it as a learning experience, having a conversation, a growth opportunity for you both. Uh, but that's definitely an easier said than done type of tactic. <laughs> yeah. I, you guys, again, took my answers. I, this is the downfall of going last, uh, but I've never dealt with anyone like this before. Sounds uh, like a totally unique experience that I have no idea how to answer this question. Um, with this type of personality, I think there's, my advice would be to be diplomatic about it. Um, what you know, try to take the high ground. If you do call them out, be diplomatic about it, right? Don't let them know, but be professional, right? Don't if um, there's the other piece of like understanding where they're coming from, uh, and they likely have similar goals to you to make the product, process, procedure, whatever it is that you're working on, better. That should be a universal goal shared between you two. And so they're they're coming at this from likely a place of trying to make that thing better. And they're just trying to add value, even if they come off as abrasive. And so, you know, either take what they say to heart or don't. That's, I think, where they're coming from. 
And yes, there's a lot to be said about delivery, especially from three people on a podcast, because we all understand the importance of communication. Not everybody does. And it's a really tough place to be when you're encountering that combative (laughs) uh, sometimes personality. Um, So, you know, just they are. And and that's that's one strategy. Right. Call them out and say, hey, look, I know we have the same goals and then question them on their beliefs. Why? Why did you say that? Why did you why do you believe that to be true? And that will often cause them to introspect and change their ways. Uh, totally, entirely. Uh, and that's sarcasm too, but <laughs> sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Like Barry said, 50-50. All right, let's get into this last one. <laughs> Company moves sprint planning to five in the morning suddenly. This is by easygoing Spyros uh, on the user experience separate. Told myself I would never die on this, or I would die, I would die on this hill and not go. 5 a.m. is ridiculous, but I don't have a job lined up to leave yet. Any advice for what to do or am I the one overreacting? Barry... What do you think about 5 a.m. stand-up meeting? Nope. That's not... Well, no, I'll qualify that. Right, so my general answer is this is a... If the sprint and the project is um, ongoing, so it's it's that's the way you, that your company works, and what they're trying to do is to pull you back to a 5 a.m. start time, which isn't a 5 a.m. start time. It's a 4.30 start time because by the time you get yourself sorted out, you've prepped for your... If you're doing it properly, you need to do your, your prep. Um, you need to know what you're doing, what you're contributing, et cetera, et cetera. So... When are you going to bed? Um, five o'clock is, is ridiculous. Um, so I sort of have, um, where I've worked in the past, core, core hours. I like to get in at five o'clock in the morning um, occasionally because that's my quiet time. Between five, say, six o'clock when I get in, um, if I've gone into my other office, it's like sort of seven. But I, I try to encourage the rest of my team not to get in until like at the earliest, seven thirty, eight o'clock, because I've got time then to prep my day and without any interruptions and then i can work at managing everybody else and do all that sort of stuff uh, I, do, I think it's unreasonable to have meetings out outside of say eight or nine to five um, because everybody works sort of some sort of flexible hours that's when you know people are going to be and that's when you should be scheduling meetings for the one exception i would say because i've seen i've seen it and done this before if you've got a short-term goal something that you need to achieve that is time bounded nothing more than a week um, or maybe you know a, a fortnight at a push. I've run projects where I've had everybody in at five o'clock um, early days, and you've worked long days. But that was for very specific reasons, very time bounded to meet a critical deadline. That was not my fault. Um, but it was you know we were talking like very very important stuff uh, to hit. So at that point, yes, you can do it and do that, and you then uh, commence. You know you reward the staff at the end of it. You know, you're buying them um, early morning breakfast at the job. You're taking them out to um, for beverages after um, after the sprint's finished. And you're heavily rewarding them for saying, you did a great job. Thank you very much. Short time bounded, emergency exercises only. But no, if you start to do that to me, then we wouldn't be working together very long. Blake, what, what, what do you, are you a five o'clock man? Could you, could you um, nail that? Yeah, this is a tough one for me in some ways. Uh, but the, ultimately, if it's like you don't want to get up at 5 a.m. for the job that you have, go find another job. Like if it's just not that interesting, it doesn't get you that excited that that's something you want to do. Awesome. Does it sound unreasonable? Probably. Unless there's like some need to work with an international client and that's kind of what you maybe didn't sign up for when you started. Or like you, you know, teams in different time zones that someone when it works and overlaps very well. Great. Um uh, but on the other end of it, like I've had jobs in the past where 
I was fine with being like at work at four 30 or being ready to go at 5am for various meetings that I couldn't have otherwise that it was just an interesting project or like piece of tech that I was working on. Uh, but it definitely feels unreasonable here. Uh, especially if this was not an expectation set, like on your onboarding, there's not a, gr a great reason. It's hard to tell from like a really small Reddit post, like why this is done. But I don't know if you, if you feel like you're, you don't want to do that, then you're not overreacting and just may not be the job for you. Um, but I, I don't know, Nick, would you want to like have sprint planning at 5am? Maybe. I mean, look, here's the thing. I'm, I'm going to take kind of the opposite perspective here. Um, you do what's best for the team. And while I wouldn't like to do a 5am meeting, nor would I like to do a 10pm meeting. Uh, I do those because I work with folks in India. Um, and I want to make things convenient for them when I meet with them. And so there's instances in which you are the odd person out. If I were to work with somebody in the UK and they were to meet at my 8 a.m., their day's over. Like their day's already over by the time I've come around and woken up. So it's like, do I wake up early and work on their time frame so that way we can all communicate on a daily sprint? Or do I complain about it and say, no, we're going to meet it at your 2 p.m. So that way I can, is that right? Is that how you do that conversion rate? Where I'm going to meet at a later time, your time. So that way I can, you know, sleep in a little bit. So I'm, I'm of two minds of this, you know, there's, did you sign up for this? And is this expected that you're going to be working with a distributed team? If so, then I think that's fair that they're setting it at 5 a.m. Is most of the team okay with that? Uh, but do what's best for your team. You know, if you can find a happy medium where you're meeting not at five, but maybe seven, and it's still early enough for them to actually get stuff done during the day. You have to look at the team dynamics too. So that's that's where I'm at. I don't think it's necessarily unreasonable. I just think this post is lacking context. I just wanted to get initial thoughts there. All right, last part of the show. One more thing. No needs, no introduction. But uh, Blake, since it's been a while, what's your one more thing this week? Uh, I'm cheating. So it was really <laughs> awesome to be back on the podcast. <laughs> but it was also <laughs> awesome to like uh, get to meet Barry in a in like a more fun context than just like in a meeting. So this was great. Uh, the other thing that I'm really excited about, and I haven't been excited about something, you know, career wise in a long time, is I'm working on developing like educational material around accessibility and UX. Um, and so I'm really focused on how do I create stuff that allows you know people that are transitioning careers or even career professionals uh to learn about how to build you know ax practices into the products that they design the software they develop and all that kind of good stuff so that's something i'm really excited about right now but barry one more thing well i i got to meet you i mean this is we've I, i've kept your seat warm now for uh, over 12 months and yeah. it's great to actually uh um interact so that's awesome um the other thing I've, I'm starting to do now is with my sort of, I'm starting to get invites to um, to give talks on human factors by by sort of almost random organizations and random people, which is amazing. They've sort of seen it on my LinkedIn that, that I'm going to become um, president, this, that, and the other, and um, and they want me to do it. But I'm finding, actually, that's really difficult. You know, we, we struggle to define things like human factors within our own community to doing it for like, school children and, and all this sort of stuff that I can see this being quite a challenging year, but I'm equally excited. Um, so it's, I might be, 
a, re- a repetitive thing might be on the on post shows to come uh, is right i'm going to be giving a talk to these people how do i get these people excited and i'll expect the audience and everybody to um, people who are listening to help me get out of this hole that i've dug for myself <laughs> Nick, <laughs> what's your uh, what's your one more thing that that is some perfect uh, post show content there I, yeah, i'm cheating here but i got to be on a podcast with both of you together so that's really awesome uh, also i've been working a lot this week. And I don't know if you've ever done this where you fit a whole week into a day, uh, a whole week's worth of work into a single day. Um, but I've done that several times this week and it's just, it's a, it's a lot and I'm happy to decompress and have an outlet to decompress. And it's, this is just a reminder for everyone listening to go hydrate and give yourself some me time. That's, that's all. And that's it for today, everyone. If you like this episode and enjoy some of the discussion about uh, what you could do with a third arm that's uh, PG-friendly, I'll, I'll go encourage you to go listen to episode 262, where we talked about robotic boots that you could slip on over your little uh, slippers or your Crocs. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Discord community. Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. Of course, you can always go and subscribe to our latest podcast, Human Factors Minute, that comes out next month. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, one, you could do this right now. Stop what you're doing, just leave us a five-star review, say uh, the, those those boys on that podcast, they're pretty nice. Uh, two, you could tell your friends about us, and that actually helps the show grow quite a lot. Or three, if you have the financial means to and want an access of all the Human Factors Minutes that we've made to date... You can always consider supporting us on Patreon. It's always links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Blake Armstrong for coming on the show and hanging out with us again. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about, uh, I don't know, uh, robot arms? You guys can always find me at Don't Panic UX across social media. LinkedIn is probably the best or YouTube. Uh, Mr. Barry Kirby, where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about how to pronounce pianist? <laughs> Uh, we all know that uh, word pronunciation is not my strong point um, but anyway you can find me across social media Basim K or if you want to listen to some interesting interviews with amazing human factors professionals then go and find me on 1202 the human factors podcast at 1202podcast.com as for me I've been your host Nick Rome you can find me on our discord and across social media at Nick underscore Rome thanks again for tuning in to human factors cast until next time it, it depends, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.